Be seated. So good to see everyone here this morning. So thankful that you are here. Appreciate your presence so very much. If you're a guest today, we want you to know that you're welcome. We want to get to know you and, and to have you here with us if you're looking for a church home. If the story had been written in the South, it would have gone something like this. The old farmer's almanac says that the hottest part of the day is around 3 o'clock. It was about that time that he was sitting out on his front porch. He was drinking some, hot, uh, some uh, iced tea and uh, he was sitting there and as he was sitting there he looked and there were three men who were walking up the driveway. And, and he got up and he ran out to meet them and he said, come up here and sit down with me for a while and get you some sweet tea. We'll let you cool off and, and we'll sit here and we'll talk. And, and they did. They talked for a while and he said before long, it, it's, it's, going to, uh, it's going to be supper time before long. He says, if y'all stay, we'll throw some steaks on the grill and, and we'll have some bread and we'll, we'll sit down and we'll eat and we'll, have, we'll just have a good time. We'll, we'll talk. And they accepted and they had a, a good meal together. And, and one of them said, well, where's your wife? He said, she's in the house. She's, uh, she's cooking. And, and they said, well, you know what? Uh, when we come back about this time next year, she's going to have a baby. And, and they said, uh, the wife was sitting there thinking or standing inside, and she was overhearing them. She said, hey, that's not possible. She said, I'm too old for that. My husband's too old. We, we, we won't be having any children. And so she snickered. She laughed about it. And, and if the story had been on, you know, in the South, they would have gone on. She, she would have said, you know, some things that uh, about, says, y'all have lost y'all's mind, you know, that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, they would have gone on. But the story was not written in the South. It was written a long time ago. It's written in the Bible. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter number 18. The story is about a man by the name of Abraham. And he was sitting in the doorway of his tent at the hottest part of the day, the Bible says. And he looked up and he sees three men coming to him. But those three men who came to him weren't just any men. The Bible says in Genesis, chapter 18, at verse number 1, that the Lord had decided to come and to visit with Abraham. If you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, you know that the Lord would come down and he would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it's there that the Bible says that he came in the cool of the day, but on this day he came at the hottest part of the day along with his angels. And the Bible says that Abraham, if you're following along in the book of Genesis chapter 18, he got up from his tent and he ran out to meet them and he invited them to stay. And, and he said, sit down here for a while and we'll bring some cool water out and we'll wash your feet. And they had a long conversation. They had a conversation about Sarah having a baby and, and, and all of those things. And we remember that story. But it came time for them to leave after having eaten a good meal. Uh, Abraham had the, a calf killed and Sarah had fixed some bread and all those things. But it came time for them to leave and they headed out, the Bible says. And then the Lord, as it were, thought for a moment. He said, can I hide what I'm about to do? From Abraham. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that Abraham was the friend of God. And so it's as though God is saying that, hey, I can't hide what I'm about to do from my friend. And so the two men, we later learned in Genesis chapter 19, that they weren't just men, they were angels that had accompanied God. But they go on down to Sodom, and God and Abraham stand there and talk. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, 
I've heard how bad it is in Sodom. I've heard of all of the sin that's going on in Sodom. And I'm about to destroy Sodom. And Abraham begins the conversation with him. He somewhat lectures God and he says to God, he said, God, if we could find just 50 righteous men, as Jairus read this morning, would you spare Sodom? And God said, yeah, for 50 I would spare Sodom. But it's not that conversation that I want us to think about, that part of the conversation. It's what else that Abraham said to God on that day. God, if we found 50 righteous people, would you, would you kill them along with all of those wicked people who are there? Would you put them to death? Would you make them suffer the same thing that you're about to bring upon all of those wicked people there? And then he raises the question, that's the question that we'll study this morning, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? For Abraham to ask that question was for him in his own mind to answer it. He knew that God would do what is right. God reaffirmed that when he said to Abraham, well, if we find 50 righteous men down there, I will not destroy Sodom. I will spare it for that. And so God confirms that he would do what was right. And Abraham already knew it. But he raised that question. You know what? That question is a really good question for us. Will the judge, not the judge of all the earth, do what is right? You know, the question is, to, to, to us today, to people today, do we who are Christians, do, do, do we believe in God to the point that we believe that He always will do what is just and what is right? You know, sometimes I wonder by the way that we talk. Sometimes I wonder by the way that we act. Do we truly believe, as Abraham believed so long ago, that God is always going to do what is just and what is right? You know, there are a lot of people in our world today who doubt God when it comes to the thing that we call death. When we think about death, we begin to doubt death itself. And, and you know, it's probably true that today... There have been many who have stood helplessly by a loved one in their bedside and, and they knew that any, at any moment the last breath would soon be drawn and their loved one would slip into eternity. And as you stood there, did you ask something like this in a silent way? Did you ask why? Did you ask, why is this happening to my mother? Why is this happening to my father? Why is this happening to my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife? Did you ask why? Were you letting just a little anger cause you to, to say something like this? It's not fair for this to happen. You see, we begin sometimes to doubt death, don't we? How many have wilted? <coughs> Some even here today upon hearing that a loved one has been killed in a tragic accident. Maybe you lashed out at God saying something like this, God, how could you allow something like this to happen? How could you allow it to take place? Perhaps it was even running through your mind that since God had abandoned you, that you yourself would abandon God in return. As we think about death, especially the death of someone we love, that's perhaps one of the most traumatic things that we will ever experience in this life. 
One of the most hurtful things that we'll ever know, one of the worst things that many of us will ever experience is to see someone (coughs) that we love pass from this life. Just maybe we should be more like Abraham and trust that the judge of all the earth is doing what is just and what is right. And maybe we could do that (coughs) if we understood death just a little better. Think about this. What would it be like if uh, our frail and imperfect bodies just couldn't die? That we would continue to live on and on, get older and older. What would it be like if we just couldn't die? In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, at verse number 7, there's a passage that many uh, are recited at many funerals and many people know. It says this, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Do you realize what is said in the first six verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12? In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, at verse number 1, the Bible says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Now we quote that part about it, but, but I want you to focus this morning on the next part of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse number 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. (coughs) Well, Solomon, what are the evil days that you're talking about when you will make the statement, I have no pleasure in them. All you need to do is continue to read and Solomon explains it for us. Solomon, what is it you're talking about? Well, (coughs) as you continue to read, Solomon talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and how they grow dim. You know what Solomon is talking about? Solomon is talking about the idea of we will grow older. And he begins to describe mankind as he grows older. And he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars, as it were, being a part of our body. And and as it were, our senses begin to diminish in our life and in our body. He talks about how the keepers of the house tremble. You know, As time goes on, our hands begin to shake and our feet and legs and all of those things begin to happen to us. He talks about the strong men are being. He's speaking about the legs and how they're becoming weakened. He talks about how that the grinders are few. Their teeth, our teeth begin to, uh, to decay and they begin to fall out. He talks about those who look through the, through the windows. He's speaking about our eyesight and how our eyesight is growing dimmer and we're unable to see as well as we used to. How many of us wear glasses and we didn't have, used to have to do that? He keeps on in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and he speaks about the doors on the street and how that you don't want to go past them and, and what he's speaking about there is how uh, that it is that we just can't get out and go like we used to go and do things that we used to do. He said the sound of the grinding is low. Our hearing is going. And he talks about how that we rise up at the sound of a bird. You know, sleep is failing us. And we get up early every morning, you know, because we just simply cannot sleep. 
We're afraid of what is high. We're fearful of, of heights and journeys because we might fall. He talks about how the almond tree blossoms. Uh, there's a commercial on television right now, and it's for one of the uh, uh, one of the almond milks. And the folks are out in in this almond uh, where all of the almond trees are, and, and they're blooming. And it's just simply white out through there. Our hair gets gray, turns gray. And he talks about the grasshopper, how it drags itself along, speaking about how we begin to shuffle when we walk as our life, our, our body here begins to fail us. He says our desires fail, our appetites, all of those things fail. And we realize that death is drawing near. And according to what the wise man says, we even begin to long for death. How many of us as we grow older and we begin to hurt and all of the things that befall us look more forward to that time when we can go to be with God in heaven? We misunderstand death. We don't fully grasp what God is doing for us. You know, God didn't want man to live forever in his fallen state. We read about Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis chapter 3, how they partook of the fruit that God had commanded them not. Down at the end of that chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, he sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and he puts a, a guard there, as it were, to keep them from going back in. A flaming sword, the Bible says, and the reason he did that is to keep them from going back into the garden, according to verse 23, so that they might partake of the tree of life and live forever in that fallen state. Live forever the way that they were. Surely God didn't want man to live in his fallen state. He didn't want man to live forever in a state of rebellion and sin. We understand that. But do you think there might be a little more to that than just simply talking about all those who are rebellious and sinful? Let me call your attention to what the Bible says in the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 2, verses 7 and 8. The Bible there says, And if he rescued Lot... Now, remember we started our lesson out today by talking about how God had come to Abraham and how God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness that they are committing. Well, Lot was living there. He was in Sodom. And God goes down and, of course, He rescues Lot. We remember that story. But it's not that part that I want to, I want to think about. It's the part that, that Peter writes about. Thank you. The part that he writes about next in 2 Peter chapter 2. He said, And he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was in torment. Wait a minute. When Lot saw all of the evil things that were going on in Sodom around him, he wasn't participating in them, the Bible teaches us here. He didn't say, well, I'm not going to judge you about what you're doing. The Bible says he was in torment. He was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
You know, it was miserable for Lot to live in Sodom. Miserable for him to be there now. Do you ever feel that way when you watch the news on television? And you see all of the things that are going on around us. You hear all of the things that, that are bad. Yesterday, 20 some odd people were shot down out in Texas in Midland and Odessa. I have friends who live in both of those places. Five people who were killed. All of those things happen. They're bad things. But you know what God offers? Offers a land where there's no sorrow and no sin. And He says you can go there. Revelation 21, verse 4. We remember that chapter, that verse. That's the verse that says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We like heaven because of that verse, don't we? We want to go there because of that verse. But do you realize that's not the only verse in, verse, in chapter 21 that tells us why we want to go to heaven? Drop all the way down, if you will, to verse number 27, if you have your Bible. In verse 27 of Revelation 21, the Bible says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. You know what? God doesn't keep people out of heaven just to punish them. They are being punished. Don't misunderstand me here. But he also keeps them out to keep his faithful from being distressed and tormented like righteous Lot was so long ago when he lived in Sodom. You see, there's a place that is so much better. No wonder Paul would write in Philippians 1 verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is... Gain. Gain. We misunderstand a lot about death. Indeed, God appointed death, but for the righteous, God appointed a place of eternal life, a place of safety, a place where we'll never have all of these bad things that happen to us happen ever again. And so... Why doubt God? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? There are some who doubt God when it comes to eternal punishment. You know, the Bible is clear that there will be such a thing as eternal punishment for those who disobey God. Matthew chapter 25 at verse 41, we have the scene of the judgment day. All nations are gathered before God. And that passage in verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The eternal fire. If you go on down to verse number 46, still talking to those same people, he says, Thee, or about these same people, these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Speaks about eternal punishment again in the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, where they'll be uh, uh, away from God in the presence of uh, his, uh, the Lord. The punishment of eternal destruction. Let me ask you this this morning. 
would it really be right and fair to all those who have trouble in this world and are troubled by the world, the wickedness that we see, if God would allow them also to live in heaven the way that He allows the righteous and the faithful to do? In the book of Job, in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse number 11, Job raises a question. Job says, Why didn't I die at birth? Come out of the womb and expire? Why why didn't I die right after I was born? Why didn't I do that? He's questioning because he's suffering so much. He's lost his children. He's lost his... His, uh, uh, all of the things that he possessed. He's lost his health. Why didn't I die when I was born? But you know what? That's not all he says about it. He says in verse 13, just two verses later, talking about dying at birth, he says, For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Well, you know what? He was going through so much. All of the things that had happened to him, the losses that he had suffered. Job says, I'd I'd be at rest. But he's not finished. Drop on down just a few more verses to verse number 17. And notice what he says. There the wicked cease from troubling. And there the weary are at rest. There won't be any troublers there. There won't be anyone to hurt and to harm there. Only those who are faithful to God. As we understand, God made man a being of choice, did He not? He allowed us and allows us to make choices in our life. There's a famous verse in Joshua chapter 24, verse number 15 Joshua said, if it seems evil to you in in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then he gives them two choices, God or, or, or the false gods. But choose. You know, if a person can choose to do what is right, as Joshua is seeking to get them to do, the person can also choose to do wrong, can he? Because there were some, evidently, who who made the wrong decision there. And they didn't teach their children right. uh, 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 Joshua says, he says, as for me and my house, I'm going to teach my children to do what's right. But only a generation or so later, they had completely turned away from God. And as we look, if a person can choose to do what's right, then certainly he can choose to do what's wrong. God, you know, probably could have made us or could have made us in such a way that that we didn't have a choice, that there was nothing voluntary about it, but God made us so that we can voluntarily choose to do right. And we can voluntarily choose to sin. If a person couldn't voluntarily choose to sin then he couldn't voluntarily choose to obey God. And where's the glory for God in that? God would simply have made an army of robots. God wouldn't be glorified by mankind. You know man is the crowning achievement of God's creation. We're made to be like him. 
And because we can choose to serve Him and do what is right, we can bring glory and honor to Him. You know, as we think about life, what happens when a nation allows criminals to simply run at large? To get away with their crime? When they do that, nobody is safe, right? Just go to some of the bigger cities in our own nation and see what's happening there. It would be a miserable existence, wouldn't it? Nobody would be safe because not even the police will go there. Things are sometimes so bad. But you know what? When people do that, both criminals and sinners, as it were, bring the punishment that they deserve upon themselves. Because of the choices that we make. In the book of Acts chapter 13 at verse 46, Paul alludes to this same thing. Paul, the Bible says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Talking to the Jewish leaders in that particular place. And then he goes on and says, Since you thrust it aside, and watch this next part. And judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. You know, what the criminal, what the sinner does is judge himself or herself not to be worthy, as it were, to live among those who are good and right people. And the sinner chooses himself, the path for himself, not to have eternal life waiting on him, but rather eternal punishment. And so, to question God in that is just erroneous for us. Do you not remember what the apostle wrote in Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 7? Do not be deceived. I bet you can remember the rest of it. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. As we look at life, why blame God when mankind, sinners, choose for themselves to disregard the goodness of God and what He offers? And then last of all this morning, some doubt God when it comes to the one faith. You know, as we look at the Bible, the Bible is clear when it speaks about the singularity, the oneness of Christ's church. In the book of Matthew chapter 16 at verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus didn't say, I'll build my churches. I will build my church. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 16, Paul wrote and said that, he, that God, Jesus, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice that he talks about how mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, or to be reconciled in one body. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? What is that one body? 
In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 6, the Bible says there's only one of them, but as you continue reading through the book of Ephesians, you'll understand that Paul talks about and calls the body the church. And so there's oneness. In the book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus, on the night before He was crucified, prayed this. He said, I don't ask for these only, talking about His apostles, I don't ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one. As I, Father, in You, He says we need to be one. But the question is, how did we get so many churches? Ever thought about that? How did we get so many? If the Lord speaks about one in the Bible, how, how do we get so many churches? If God claims only to have one, then the rest must necessarily have come from someone else, right? God only has one. And therefore it's man. And not God who's responsible for all of the religious division that we have throughout our world today. Man, not God. You know, when men want to make the Bible fit their wishes, their likes, their preferences, rather than fitting themselves to the Bible, the inevitable result is division. Mankind chooses not to put himself or herself and make his life or her life fit the Bible, but rather change the Bible to fit their desires, their wants, their preferences, everything that that suits them, that's when we have divisions. You know why? Because I probably don't want the same thing you want. I, I probably wouldn't like it the same way you like it. But God had a plan. And God had one. How foolish would it be for one preacher to preach contradictory statements and doctrines at different locations? Maybe he went somewhere and he preached that baptism has nothing whatsoever to do with men's salvation in one place. He goes to a second place and he preaches that one has to be baptized in order to be saved. And he goes to another place and he says, well, you know what? This baptism that I'm talking about is simply taking a little water and sprinkling or pouring it over you. And he goes to a fourth place and he says, hey, he says, you know, baptism is only and strictly immersion in water. Now, if that same man was going to these different places and preaching these different things, we'd say something like, this guy has lost his mind. You can't trust him. You can't trust him because he's liable to say one thing with one group and something completely opposite in front of another group. And if that one guy is doing that and we think we can't trust him, what would make it any different with God? If God accepts different ways and different men who choose to worship and serve and be a part of God's family in whatever way that they want. What makes that just about God? In the book of Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, there was a discussion going on between the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The Bible says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. There was a problem in regard to the Gentiles. To consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Paul says the Jew and the Gentile are going to be saved, or rather Peter said the Jew and the Gentile are going to be saved in the same way. Notice, continue reading in verses 10 through 11, the Bible says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You see, the Jewish brethren, the Jewish Christians wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow some of the Jewish laws. And Peter says that's just not right. He says they'll be saved just like we will, by the grace of God. You know, to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, when they said, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what he told them to do. But did he tell the Gentiles anything any different? No. In the book of Acts chapter 10, we read about Peter going to the the first Gentile convert, a man by the name of Cornelius. And after that spirit was poured out by God upon them, we have these verses, verses 47 and 48. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why did he command them to be baptized? The answer to that is found in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, where Peter recounts that story. He told us how we had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon. He's telling us what Cornelius had said. Bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare a message. What kind of message is Peter going to declare? A message by which you will be saved. What was the message? Repent, which they had. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, God has not set up one way for some to be saved and a different way for others. That's seen clearly in the Bible and the way that God handled both the Jews and the Gentiles. God has not set up a church for some, one church for some, and one church or another church for someone else, and and, and then just say to mankind, well, you choose the one that you like. You choose what you want to do. God hasn't done that. Number one, it would make God look foolish to do that. Number two, you know what else it would do? It would exalt man's opinion 
over God's will. Yet the Bible says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Our will does not supersede that of God. You know, I guess to, to sum it all up, we disagree sometimes about death. We, we hear people who just can't believe God would send people to hell. We, we disagree about, you know, sometimes what the Bible has to say in regard to the oneness of the Lord's church, the one faith. But when a person decides that God is wrong in how He handles things and, and, and that I could do it better, that my will supersedes God's, then what he is really saying is that God is not really a just and right judge, and I am. That is not to be. God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not yours. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul affirmed, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, watch this, the righteous judge will give me on that day. And then there's the passage out of the book of Deuteronomy, 32 at verse number 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right, upright, is he. Good friends, you can count on your God that the judge of all the earth will always do what is just and what is right. Always. That's the God we serve. That's the God that came down and talked to Abraham so long ago. The question is this morning, since God will always do what is right, what about me? What about you? Will you set your heart to do what is good and what is right always and every day? Sometimes we'll miss the mark. But I want to be walking in the light. I want to be found doing just that. It may be this morning that you know that you need to be baptized for the remission of sins based on your faith in Jesus Christ. It may be that you want to study more. It may be that you know that you've been baptized but you need to come back to God. If we can assist you in any way this morning, we'd love to do just that as together we stand and sing.